Well, if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you've just joined us, uh, we're, we're studying a rather small book in the, in the uh, Old Testament, but a very significant one. Uh, chronologically, we, uh, you know what, I, as you turn there, let me just remind you of one thing. I almost forgot, a big one. March the 20th, this event is with uh, Dr. Thomas Mack. He's the academic vice president of Cedarville University Second Command. He's done a lot on history and politics, and he's coming to speak about Christianity and politics. Many of you have signed up, but we only have about 40 seats left to, to maximize this room. So if you've not signed up, you need to do it. Uh, you won't want to miss this. Uh, in light of the world we're living in right now, I think it's really appropriate for us as believers to stop and say, okay, how do we navigate these waters? And I don't know about you, but I have friends who say, I'm not going to vote. Uh, as a believer, I'm, I'm not getting involved. Others would argue, that's the worst thing you can do. You need to vote. And, and so you have this spectrum. Uh, uh, this is not a uh, Democrat rally. This is not a Republican rally. Uh, it is a biblical rally in, in knowing how to navigate the waters. So it's open to men and women. So anyway, that's the plug. Uh, you register via our website. So if you have questions, you can see me afterwards. So in this room. Yeah, and again, we can only have so many seats. So it's already, I think we got like 100, 170 who've signed up. We can only put 200 in here. So if, uh, do it today. So going to the text of Nehemiah, just to kind of review, this book is taking place in first in, in Susa. This is the winter palace capital of the Persian Empire. And we are talking 400s B.C., the significance of that will we'll highlight uh, the king of the Persian Empire at the time is Artaxerxes. And no, I did not sneeze, but we'll talk about him a little more today too. Our storyline, of course, is focusing on Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, as we're, we're going to see again, is a, is a servant, a cupbearer in the royal court. And he is Jewish. He hears of the news in Jerusalem that the city walls are destroyed, the gates have been burned, things are not well, and he's desiring to go back, as we're going to see, to bring uh, relief to that region. And so that's the storyline. Again, we're in the 440s. And there's some major themes of this book I want you to see. They're going to come screaming out of our text today. That is, the sovereign hand of God should not be missed. God is in charge. And uh, even the greatest leader of that day, the most powerful man in the world, the Persian king, is still under God's control. And we'll see that. The people of God are called to remain faithful. That will come through loud and clear with Nehemiah's reforms when he goes back as governor. And God's full restoration of his people is yet to come, which I would argue comes through Christ. And that's what this book is trying to show you as we move through. So Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we are. We're only going to look at eight verses today. It says, then in the month of Nisan, this is about April, uh, if you recall, in fact, let me just show you this little map here. This is the Jewish calendar, uh, and our calendar is in January through December. That is not the Jewish calendar, and so what you'll see here is Kislev is where our storyline started. Remember that? Uh, let's look at the text. Look at verse 1 of Nehemiah 1.1. 1, 1. So it happened that in the month of Kislev, this is in December. And now where are we? We're in April. Four months. Four months Nehemiah has been praying. And we're going to see as we go through the text, he's also been doing a lot of homework. 
Uh, this was very calculated. And I want you to see that as he moves. It just isn't willy-nilly. And Oh, king, please intervene. No, he intervened. He's thought through this very carefully. It says in 2.1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, this is about 445 B.C., the king of Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was brought to me, and again, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, 111 tells us that, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Previously, I had not been depressed in the king's presence. But with the last four months, Nehemiah is, is I wouldn't say emotionally wrecked, but he has been very distraught, right? Uh, he's cried much, no doubt. I don't think he's slept a whole lot since he says he's prayed night and day. It has been on his mind and it's starting to show physically, even through a beard, right? Uh, that that he, he's distraught. So the king said to me, why do you appear to be distressed when you aren't sick? What can this be other than a sadness of heart? This made me very fearful. We'll talk why that would be the case. I replied to the king, O king, live forever. Why would I not be dejected in appearance when the city with the graves of my ancestors lies desolate and its gates destroyed by fire? The king responded, What is in you that you're seeking? And I quickly prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, If the king is so inclined and if your servant has found favor in your sight, dispatch me to Judah, to the city with the graves of my ancestors, so that I can rebuild it. The king with his consort sitting beside him. Uh, you might have, does anyone have queen yes. in your English version? Uh, the text, the, the word here in the Hebrew is a little unclear. It, it could be... Uh, a member of the concubine, or it could be a queen, a true queen. We don't know. Uh, we know, for instance, Esther. Remember, she's a queen, but she's also part of a, a harem uh, as well. Then the king with the, said, how long would your trip take, and when would you return? Since the king was uh, amenable to dispatching me, I gave him a time. All right? So he's already thought through that how long it would take to rebuild those walls. And I said to the king, if the king is so inclined, let him give him, let me Give me, excuse me, letters for the governors of the trans-Euphrates that will enable me to travel safely until I reach Judah. And a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's nature preserve, so that he will give me timber for beams. And watch this, for the gate to the fortress, adjacent to the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the home to which I go. So the king granted me these provisions. And then here it is, for the good hand of my God was on me. Now this is a loaded text, so buckle your seatbelts here as we go through this text. I want you to see several things, and again, if you, sh you all should have a set of notes. Um, by the way, uh, the notes are available online. You just need to go to our website. They are free. You can print those off, or you can even search them, which uh, I love that feature. Uh, so all of that is available to you there uh, on our website. So just keep that in mind. I had, had a couple people email me this week saying, I can't make uh, next week uh, and I need the notes. And they're, they're there. Well, <clears throat> under letter A of your notes, I have here the appearance before the king. Uh, this is how uh, artists have rendered the palace in Persia. Down below is the remains of the palace today. It's an Iran, so I don't plan to go visit it. But if you'd like to take plenty of photos for us, please. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it, it, sadly, in Iraq and Iran, there are a lot of incredible archaeological sites. But you think of Babylon, Nimrod, I mean, Ur, and that's amazing. Um, but uh, Susa is in modern day Iran. 
In your notes, I mentioned this. The ancient historian Herodotus states that the kings of Persia once a year, usually on their birthday, would hold a banquet and anyone who had a request may make it and the king was expected to honor it. So some scholars believe this is the time frame. This is the banquet in which Nehemiah has waited knowing that at this event, Artaxerxes most likely will grant my request. We don't know that. <clears throat> there could be a banquet, but clearly in the text, when it mentions that the queen is present, we've moved to a private meeting because the queen, or a member of the harem, was uh, not really allowed to attend formal banquets. They were to be off to the side. So that she's present tells us, at least at one point in this conversation, we've moved behind closed doors. Um, some would argue that the queen is favorable to Nehemiah or she's not. And that's why she's being highlighted. We just don't know. The text doesn't elaborate. But in verse 2, look at this in 2.2, 2, we're told here that the, that Nehemiah has a countenance that's quite depressed. We also know, historically, that that was verboten in Persian courts. If you served in the Persian court, you need to look like you were working at Disney. All right? It was, every day was a party. Every day was Christmas. Smile. You are not to show sullen face. That was forbidden. And in fact, some would argue that it was a death penalty for that. The text lets us know it was a problem because notice Nehemiah's response. What does the text tell us? What does Nehemiah state? He was what? Very fearful. He is scared spitless. The king has spotted uh, Nehemiah's countenance and it's not good. And I, and I mentioned this there again in your notes. The text, this has made me fearful, is used in only one other location in the Old Testament. It's used of Abram, Abraham, when he encounters the Lord in a vision. And he too is scared spitless. And so the phrase indicates that which is indicating intense anxiety and even concern for one's life. So this only confirms what we know historically that uh, you smile and wave in the, in the Persian courts. You are not to look sad. In fact, it could implicate that Nehemiah is, is, is involved in a coup. He's looking to assassinate the king. And, and you don't need that, especially from your cupbearer. <laughs> this is one of your most trusted men in your arsenal. And so, and, and the king even seems agitated in verse 3, Right? Or, excuse me, in verse 2. Because he says, why do you appear to be depressed? What's going on with you? Uh, there's, some have argued there's a real tension here. The text is not super clear. So in verse 3, when he replies to the king, uh, <clears throat> similar to Esther, Nehemiah is very calculated. He makes it personal, doesn't he? In fact, in verse 3, look at verse 3 for a second. What does Nehemiah say and what does he not say? About, think about what we know in chapter 1. What does he say and what does he not say? Help me out. Well, he praises the king, which we'd expect that. What else does he say? What, what's his concern about? Does it say Jerusalem? No, he never mentions Jerusalem to Artaxerxes. <coughs> never. Why? 
We'll get to this in a minute. But in Ezra chapter 4, Artaxerxes ordered that there is no building of the walls in Jerusalem. It was a royal edict. He's now reverse. He's, he's going to have to reverse it. Nehemiah knows this. This is in dangerous waters. Because not only is he going to request to go back to Jerusalem, or to go back to, to go to Jerusalem, he's also going to ask the king to reverse his edict that he had delivered back in Ezra chapter 4. And we'll look at that in a minute. He never mentions Jerusalem. What else does he not mention? Let's go, go back to chapter 1. Look at the report that's given to him. This might help. Because <clears throat> remember he asked his brother or some relative, Ananiah, how are things back in Jerusalem? And verse 3 of chapter 1, the remnant that remains from the exile there is experiencing adversity. The wall of Jerusalem lies breached and its gates have been burned. Now, go back to chapter 2, verse 3. Look what Nehemiah tells the king. He says, you know, when the city with the graves of my ancestors lie desolate and its gates destroyed, what does he not include that was reported to him? The walls. It's not mentioned until verse 8 in his, his interaction with the king. So not only does Artaxerxes never mention Jerusalem by name, he doesn't mention the walls until later. Why? Because that was the real rub back in Ezra chapter 4. Nehemiah, he's playing his cards very well. This is a chess game, but one, one way, except God's ultimately moving all the pieces, right? <clears throat> what does he say in chapter 2? This is good Bible study, by the way. We're comparing, we're looking at what is, what is there, but what is also not there. What does Nehemiah mention that he did not hear back in chapter 1? What about the ancestors? They're dead. Now, you need to understand this. In a Middle Eastern culture at this time frame, to have your family tombs desecrated was an abomination. Even the Persians would see this as horrific. And so, what is Nehemiah doing? He's pulling at the heartstring of the king. You know, oh, my doggy died. Worse yet, the tombs of our family have been desecrated. It's, it's a really very smooth move. In fact, it's repeated twice in, in uh, Nehemiah's... Look, it's, it's repeated... Well, we see it in verse 3, and he's going to bring it up again in verse 5. The graves. This never came up in chapter 1. Well, what was the issue? It was the walls. And he doesn't even refer to those until verse 8. And so it's, it's all very careful in what he's doing. And this is highlighted there on page two of your notes. The verse four, when the king says, what are you seeking? What's the implication there? What do you want? Right? What, what's going on there? What, what do you want me to do about this? And this is the turning point. The king seems to turn uh, what seems to be a bit skeptical and a little... Uh, reticent about with Nehemiah changes to, okay, what can I do? What do you need? And I love the line in verse 4 at the end. It says, then I quickly pray. This is those uh, blitzkrieg prayers, right? Boom. What's wrong? Oh, oh, I saw a hand there. Okay, this blitzkrieg prayer says, Lord, you know, <clears throat> I, I need your help. But he says, the God of heaven. It's the same prayer or designation that he gave. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. 
I said, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Please, O oh Lord God of heaven. Right? Oh God of heaven, you're above all people, including the Persian Empire. And I need your help. <laughs> We've talked about this for four months. Uh, and, and now I'm going to put it into action. Nehemiah will ask for three things. All right? He's going to ask for a leave of absence. We'll see that in a minute. He's going to ask for an endorsement letter or letters. We'll talk about that. And he wants a donation. <laughs> he's thought through the time frame. He's thought through what needs to be done. So he's, uh, you know, he's got a contractor hat on at this moment. And he also is a financial year because he understands what it's going to cost to, to take this endeavor. Four months. He's not just been sitting in a corner saying, oh, Lord, what do we do? He's still praying for four months, but he's, he's, he, has, he has been carefully calculating what needs to transpire. Watch this. Let's look at this. Number one, <clears throat> as we look at this, he asked for a leave of absence to go rebuild the city. We see this in verse 5. Now, I mentioned Ezra 4. I want you to turn there. Uh, that's the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 4 is where we are. <clears throat> and you need to understand the, the backdrop because this is very significant. The governor of the region, uh, you know, you need, the Persian Empire was broken up into provinces. And each of those provinces had governors who were obviously accountable to, ultimately, to the king. The Sumerian governor is ticked off that the Jews have come back to Jerusalem. They've built the temple. There's worship going. And so, and now the Jews in, back in Ezra 4 were starting to build the walls. And so the Samaritan governor, you know who the Samaritans are, right? Uh, those were the Jews that were, when the Jews were deported by the Babylonians, some of the Jews were left behind. And they intermarried with the local yokels and the other groups that were brought in by the Babylonians. They are, to the Jew, half-breeds. And the hatred between the Samaritans and Jews, the first episodes we see are in Ezra. By the time we get to the New Testament, they just, you know, as a Jew, you don't go through Samaritan territory. You don't dare drink a cup from a Samaritan. You don't help them. Samaritans, they disdain the Jews. And there is great animosity between the two groups. And it really starts back all the way back to here. Uh, and back in the time in the five four five hundreds BC, and so listen to the letter that Raum writes. That's the governor writes to Artaxerxes to Artaxerxes the king from your servants in Trans Euphrates. That's the region over Judah Samaria. It says now let the king be aware that the Jews who came up to uh, to us from have gone down to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and odious city. <laughs> Here it goes, right? They are completing its walls, repairing its foundation. Let the king also be aware that the city is built, its walls, blah, 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 and on it goes. And, and the text tells us that the king is so upset. This is King Artaxerxes, the same king Nehemiah is appearing before, says, that's it. He writes a letter and says to the Jews, do not build the city walls of Jerusalem. That is not to happen. And most historians believe that Samaritan governor then took the edict that Nehemiah, or that Artaxerxes gave. He not only s s stopped the building of the walls, he tore them down and burnt the gates. 
And that's the condition we find the city in when we come to Nehemiah. But that was all Artaxerxes doing. He said, no more. And now Nehemiah is going to say, you know, I, I, would you reconsider? <laughs> and, and that's why he's doing what he's doing, right? He never mentions Jerusalem. And again, we, we appear to have this private meeting that's going on here as uh, Nehemiah appears before the king. Notice the interchange from the king. To me, this is astounding. Because in verse 6, of all the things the king could ask, right? What's his concern about in verse 6? <laughs> yeah. Good help is hard to find. <laughs> I don't want to lose you, Nehemiah. Which tells us a lot about Nehemiah, doesn't it? His heart is back in Jerusalem. He has relatives there. He cares about. That's obvious from chapter 1. And yet, and yet, he's faithfully serving his employer. And Artaxerxes has been somewhat hostile to the Jews. Right? And yet he's faithfully serving him. Okay. Not a believer, but faithfully serving. It's fine. Stepping on toes yet? Yes, the, Rick. The cupbearer was good for security. I mean, did he, was he the taster? Or exactly what was... Thank you. The cupbearer, we talked a little bit about this last week. Yamauchi and his Persia and the Bible, uh, a book that he wrote, which is Dynamite, if you want to read more on this era. The cupbearer wasn't just someone who tasted the wine to make sure it's not poisoned. Uh, this was the king's close confidant. Uh, the cupbearer had power and authority to say who and who would not see the king. So uh, this is someone of, of great status. And, and uh, the king's concerned. Now, flip side is, what better person to send to Jerusalem and fortify it than someone you trust? Nehemiah. Furthermore, what we don't see in the text, but we know historically is at this point, the Egyptians, and we talked about this as well, and the Greeks have been trying to invade this area, the Trans-Euphrates area. And we know archaeologically that Artaxerxes is starting to fortify cities in this region to hold those enemies back. So, Nehemiah, God's timing, right? God's timing. And you look at history, right? I just saw a documentary on the Germans could have won at least a major world war battle, World War II battle, if they had just done X, Y, and Z. Well, God is still the sovereign one, you know? Uh, and Dick, you were in Vietnam. There's things you could tell us as well about how if I had just been there that next day, this would have happened. God's hand of, of so, you know, sovereign hand over all things. So we see here, number one, that Nehemiah requests an, a leave of absence. The second thing he requests are letters. This would be uh, a letter from this time frame. It's usually about the size of your palm of your hand, about as thick as your wallet. Um, and they use cuneiform letters, and, or uh, yeah, letters to, to write the epistle. And that's what we have going on here. And, and so Nehemiah it, it, it sends, he wants an endorsement letter. Why? <clears throat> Because governors like Rehum, the Samaritan governor, is not going to be too happy with Nehemiah coming back and building a wall, right? That's not going to settle well. Nehemiah knows that. He needs Artaxerxes to clear the way politically to make sure there's no problems here. So, two, he, he's thought through this. And then finally, he asked for a donation. I love this. 
you want to talk about chutzpah, right? It's, it's enough that you're asking for a leave of absence and you want a letter of endorsement and that he revokes his decision that he'd made way back. But look what he says. Now, he says, I also want a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's natural preserve. I want access to your lumber and I want you to give it. And, and most likely this forest is just south of Jerusalem. He not only, Nehemiah not only knows there's a forest there, he knows the keeper of the forest. Don't tell me he hasn't been doing his homework. He's got this all laid out, <laughs> doesn't he? And he says, uh, King, I want you to give some wood. So <laughs> he boldly requests it. He knows what's going on and he wants it for the timber for three things, which is interesting. He's thought through all the construction. He knows what materials he needs. He knows how long it's going to take and he knows what he needs to do. That is, I need to, to fix the gates of the fortress. We have no archaeological evidence of this, but I don't lose sleep over this. By the first century, we have the Roman fortress on the north side of the Temple Mount called the Antonio Fortress. Uh, uh, the city of David, the uh, the original site of the city of David, the only place where it was impregnable was on coming from the north, from the mount. So that's why there was a fortress there. The Hashmoneans had a fortress there during the intertestament period, and I suspect so did, uh, obviously, at this time frame there was a fortress. He also wants it for the walls. It's the first time he mentions those in verse 8. And third, he wants one for his casa, his house. Uh, I got to be able to do what I need to do. I need a place to stay. Right? So I don't know how large his casa was, but uh, uh, that's what he needs. And by the way, it's great. Even today, you can see remnants of Nehemiah's wall in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about those walls as we get through that. Well, one of the major questions that, that arises from this text is what does Nehemiah 2 tell us about God's sovereignty and human responsibility? This is not in your notes, but how would you answer this? What does it tell us? I think Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is in the hand of God. Proverbs 21, it's a text we're going to look at in a minute. You're right. The king's hearts are in his hand. I think of Pharaoh, right? He was also the most powerful man in the world at the time. Yeah. God dealt with him too. Um... God is overseeing everything. That's what Nehemiah tells, shows us. What else does it tell us, though, in chapter 2? What's our role in this? Sit by idly? Wait for God to act? Pray. I'm sorry? Do your, homework. Do your homework, but also depend on Him, recognize Him, pray. Yeah? You take risks. There is a tension here. D.A. Carson wrote a book on human responsibility and divine will, calling it the, the, the great mystery. There is a tension, isn't there? God is, we're not puppets. God is, in his grace and love, has allowed us to, to act. Uh, I've got a couple quotes that are worth their weight in gold uh, there on page three. Uh, first, I want you to read Jerry Bridges, which is the second quote 
and trusting God. I love this. He says, no plan of God's can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases. He works out every event to the accomplishment of his will. Such a bare, unqualified statement of the sovereignty of God would terrify us if that was all we knew about God, right? I mean, what a, whoa, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. It's the next line that's great. But God is not only sovereign, he's perfect in love and infinite wisdom. God's, yeah. God's virtual logic. <laughs> yeah, yes. And that's why this text ends with this powerful statement in verse 8. God's hand was on me. It's the same line Ezra used in his ministry. <clears throat> I quote from Williamson. Now you can look at this quote. He says, What appears at one level to be the bountiful grant of Persian king turns out to be merely a channel through which the bounty of the king of kings reaches his people. Nehemiah, while fearful, ultimately his eyes were on the king of kings, not the king of Persia. Right? And that leaves me with three things to hang on our beak. Let me give you three things today. Faith is not a permit to forgo careful thinking and planning. Uh, we have to be careful. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Uh, Kierkegaard is wrong. Hebrews 11, for instance, <laughs> the great hall of faith that's listed in Hebrews 11, the reason they, they stepped out in faith is because they knew who their God was, right, etc. And so faith is not a permit to forego careful thinking. But secondly, in knowing all this, and this is Proverbs 21, the text that Don, you just cited, changing a heart is God's line of work. I love Swindoll's statement. No matter how important the person, God is the one who decides the direction a heart will bend. So you got an employee you'd like to <laughs> remove, a boss you'd like to remove, May be uh, a child that you've prayed long and hard and there's been no response. A friend that you've parted ways and Proverbs 21 and Nehemiah shows us, hey, it's God who can change a heart. Even when you think it's impossible. Uh, who would have thought Artaxerxes would reverse an edict that he had delivered back in Ezra chapter 4 and listen to a cupbearer who's not even Persian. He's a Jew, right? And he listens. And so I don't know about you. One, I find it very comforting to know that God changes hearts. That's not my role. And this is a hard one, isn't it? When you're working with someone, you just want them to change. You, you, you do all of this. Ultimately, I can't. That's the Lord's business. And I find that freeing, but also joyful to know that God is in that business. <laughs> he is concerned. And Nehemiah shows that. Well, I'm starting to preach. Let me give you one more. Failure to step out in faith eliminates the incredible opportunity to be used by the Lord. Turn to Psalm chapter 5. You're going to love this psalm. Psalm 5. Just verses 11 and 12. But may all who take shelter in you be happy. May they continually shout for joy. Shelter them so that those who are loyal to you may rejoice. 
You regard, excuse me, you reward the godly. Lord, like a shield, you protect them in your good favor. Nehemiah had several choices, didn't he? Right? He could, he could have done nothing and say, well, that's not my problem. That's the problem over there, back in Jerusalem. Let them figure it out. He could do nothing but, com but, but then complain. <laughs> so he could be a grump, you know, and be bitter, but do nothing. He, he could have asked Artaxerxes to send somebody else. I mean, after all, he's got a nice cushy job. It's great. He gets to drink the wine the king drinks. He gets to stay in the palace, right? This is awesome. Meet all these foreign dignitaries, all these movie stars coming into town. Right? This is awesome. This is great. And, and he could have said, Artaxerxes, we have a real problem. I think you need to reverse the edict. And my brother is happy to do that. Send him. No. He says, I'll go. And God uses him in a very mighty way. Right? This is an amazing fella. <laughs> Not because he has some spiritual element that none of us have. He's a man who knows how to fall on his knees and says, Lord, use me. I want to do your will. And then he sets forth to move and says, okay, here's some things we need to take care of. Questions or comments on Nehemiah? It's convicting. At least it is to me. Um, yeah. I was afraid someone would ask that question. <laughs> the time frame between Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 2, uh, I've read a variety. Several say, some say about 10 years, 12 years. Uh, don't know. That's why these two books are seen together, by the way. Uh, but uh, we did, just don't know. Qu any other questions I can't answer? <laughs> it's a rich book, isn't it? You know, um, when you're in ministry, uh, there's times when you want to run ahead of the Lord. And Nehemiah didn't do that either. He said, Lord, you're in charge. Here's, here's the plan. But you're going to have to open that door. And man, when it opened, Nehemiah went for it. He said, okay, Lord, we're going in. And he does. And God uses it in a mighty way. So be warm, be filled. And uh, may God raise up more Nehemiahs. Many of you are involved in ministry, uh, formally or officially or unofficially. And I pray that Nehemiah serves as a great template for us all. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, in the midst of life's struggles, it's easy to lose sight that you are the sovereign one and you're in control. And it's easy to, to, at times to, to wallow in a pit of despair, <laughs> to uh, wring our hands and say, I, I'm done. But Nehemiah didn't do that. He turned to you, number one. And, and, and the reason he even turned to you was because he was concerned about you, your, your glory, your name. And then he didn't rest. He's busy calculating what it would take if the door should open. And when it did, he walked through it by your grace. And I love that last line, that your hand was upon them. Indeed, Lord, that is the case for all of us.
It's you who called us from enslavement to sin. According to Ephesians 2, you're the one who allow us to call you Father. And you are desirous that we do your will more than we do. So Lord, go before us. Go before each one in this room. Father, for those who have loved ones or employees or employers who need a changed heart, we lift them up to you even today. You are the sovereign one. Uh, you're the one who holds the hearts. And so we pray that whatever that situation might be, that you would intervene and that we might see your power, your majesty. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.